Good morning. Today is Sunday, the fifth day of February 2017. There was a time when gas prices jumped for the first time over $1 a gallon. This was a big deal in the 1970s. A woman named Liz offered the world an automobile that got 70 miles per gallon. The car was called The Dale, and we have its story on the 119th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Thanks for joining me this morning. You know, I'm not the type of person to complain, but since the new year began, I have not received any emails from any listeners. Should I panic? Was 2016 the peak of my success? Hmm. Only time will tell. You know, I attempt to do as much research as possible before I write a Coffee with Jeff episode, and there's one thing I constantly come across that, well, it really bugs me. There will be a website out there that claims to have a biography or such of whatever I'm writing about. Perfect, I figure. What a find. But then this happens, and it happens often. It's just a site repeating, word for word, what's on Wikipedia. Though they'll tell you it's from Wikipedia because, if I understand it correctly, you're allowed to copy information from Wikipedia as long as you give them credit. But here's the thing. Why do they do it? Look, when one types in any subject in which they would like to learn more, the wiki page for that subject always comes up first or near the top of the list. Well ahead of Uncle Bob's blog of knowledge... I bring this up because I had a different story in mind for today's show, and Wikipedia had almost nothing. But Wiki's almost nothing was copied over by, well, at least a dozen other sites. I kept clicking on other links, thinking I'm going to get more information to find out it was just what I've already read. Anyway, it worked out better because the story I came up with for today's episode was a fun one. Well, fun for me, probably not so much for the people who lost money in the deal. Well, today in the United States is a holiday. It's called Super Bowl Sunday. It's a time when a large portion of the country eats a massive amount of unhealthy food, drinks large amounts of fluid that causes problems with control movement, speech, judgment, and memory, and watch a bunch of adults play a game all the time pretending that its outcome is somehow important. They will yell and scream when things go the way they hoped, or when they don't. I know this because I've been one of those people. And here's the thing. Remember, no matter how things turn out, whether the team you chose to throw your emotions to wins or loses, you still have to go to work Monday morning. So, anyway, it's cold here in the Midwest, very cold, but I'm warm with a hot cup of coffee with just a a hint of sugar added. And I'm ready to tell you a story, a true story, to the best of my understanding of a car called The Dale. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. 
You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Regardless of who is profiting, we're all going to pay because this country runs primarily on oil. And Jay Backus joins us now live with an analysis. Jay, where are you? At a downtown Ohio, Bill, where as you can see the price of unleaded tonight is 73.9. That's high enough for any of us who can remember when premium was 27.9. But 73.9 is not as high as it's going to go. Today's OPEC increases are expected to drive the price of unleaded up to a national average of 77 cents per gallon. Government economists are saying tonight that the OPEC increases today can be expected to add a full percentage point to the cost of living this year. Bill? Okay, Jay, thank you very much. As I've mentioned in the past, I'm an old man. I was born in 1961. I received my first driver's license in 1977, and a year which was an interesting time to be a driver. We were still in the middle of the gas crisis that began in October of 1973. It all started when members of the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, commonly known as OPEC, proclaimed an oil embargo. I'm not going to go into all the political drama of the time, but the bottom line for American drivers was that the price of oil shot up. Put it this way, from 1918 to 1970, gas went from about 18 cents to 36 cents a gallon. From 1970 to 1980, gas prices went from 36 to $1.22 a gallon. That's over three times the price in less than 10 years. And besides the skyrocketing gas prices, there wasn't enough to go around. Service stations would run out of gas and others limited the amount you could buy. Long lines at the gas pumps were common as well as signs proclaiming no gas or sold out. Smaller automobiles with better gas mileage were in high demand. So began the age of the economy car. The GM Vega, Ford Pinto, the AMC Pacer and Gremlin, Volkswagen Golf were all in response to the gas shortage. There was one car you've probably never heard of, a car that was all set to revolutionize the auto industry that never made it into production. It was going to be a lightweight, fuel-efficient, inexpensive car weighing about 1,000 pounds and would sell for $2,000. It would get an amazing 70 miles per gallon. And here's the kicker. It was going to be made in America, but not by one of the three big automakers of the time, GM, Ford, or Chrysler, but a new manufacturer. I'll knock the hell out of Detroit, Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael, the head of the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation, said. I'll rule the auto industry like a queen. The car that was all set to transform the auto industry was called the Dale, named after its designer Dale Clift. There were a few problems that would later be revealed. The woman known as Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael was not who she seemed to be, and the Dale, well, let's get into it. Dale Clift was born in 1932 and was a quiet, unassuming man who was well-liked by all who knew him. He was a very talented engineer who was into boats, water skiing, and motorcycles. According to his friend Richard Smith, Dale was not a person who showed outward emotion. If he liked or disliked something, he would say so, not get all giddy. He was quick to laugh and was very pleasant to be around. 
when the gas crisis of the 70s hit, Dale had an idea. And that was to use a motorcycle to make a car. Something that was lightweight and got great gas mileage. In his residential garage in suburban Los Angeles, he used a half-inch electrical conduit to form a frame and covered it with naugahyde, which of course is an artificial leather, to create a body. The vehicle only had three wheels, two in the front and one in the back, which was powered by a motorcycle engine. A 305cc twin engine from a Honda CB77 Superhawk. The vehicle wasn't made with any blueprints or designs, it was just something Dale created more or less as a hobby. It was registered for street use as a motorcycle. He drove his motorcycle car hybrid around the neighborhood, often taking friends for a ride. One such man was Dale's friend Richard Smith, who said in a threewheeler.com e-interview that he and his wife would often take rides in the little car. This machine didn't have a lot of power, couldn't even get up to 30 miles per hour, and I can only assume that the way the body was constructed, it wasn't very sturdy. Now, in the interview with Richard Smith, he says that he was under the impression that Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael, who went by the name Liz, worked at a marketing firm headquarters only a couple miles from Dale's home where he built the car, though he does admit he's not 100% sure of that. And it might have been that she had seen the car traveling around the local streets. The story goes that one day in 1974, Dale and his wife were having dinner when they were approached by someone who said they knew someone who could mass-produce the new vehicle. This led to a meeting with Dale and Liz. Liz was a large woman, somewhere around 6 feet tall and weighed somewhere between 175 to 225 pounds, depending on whose story you listen to. Her background was a little sketchy. At various times, she would say that she was anything from an Indiana farm girl to a stock car racer, an entrepreneur with an MBA from the University of Miami, or a mechanical engineer with a degree from Ohio State University. The mother of five children, the widow of a NASA structural engineer, the former owner of a company that modified cars, the builder of custom and experimental vehicles, or a patent holder on something called self-skinning foam. Carmichael was one of those odd types of people that had that carny-like ability to convince anyone to put down money, to invest in an idea, no matter how crazy it was. Like I said, Dale's car was not built according to any designs or drawings, but that didn't matter. Liz told him that they would have an engineer and others work on the details to mass-produce the car, with both Liz and Dale looking over their shoulder. Richard Smith said that there was no doubt that Dale was very pleased that his idea for a three-wheeled car was coming to fruition. And this new vehicle was to be named after its creator. It would be called the Dale. If you look online, you can find many pictures of the Dale, but... There is not one picture of the original one that Dale Clift had created in his garage. To this day, I'm not sure if anyone knows what it looked like or how close the advertised car was to Dale's original design. So the two agreed on a deal. Dale received $1,001 plus a check for 2000 with the idea that he was set to receive up to $3 million in royalties once the Dale went into production. 200000 of that he would get in advance as a down payment. 
The check for the $2,000 bounced and the $200,000 were never paid. When he questioned Liz about this, she would give him a sob story of how her expenses were a lot higher than she expected. Dale initially accepted this. In the fall of 1974, the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation, a name that apparently came from Anne Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged, was incorporated. The idea, or so the investors were led to believe, was taking on the three big automotive manufacturers in Detroit. Liz set herself up in an expensive office on Ventura Boulevard in Encino, California. A slick six-page full-colored brochure was produced showing the futuristic banana-yellow Dale in all its glory. The cover of the brochure read, The new 75-mile-per-hour Dale, dollar for dollar, the best car ever built. And inside there were more remarkable claims. The most exciting new car of this century. The first space-age automobile. Designed and built like it's ready to be driven to the moon. I went on to say that the car was a masterpiece in automotive design and engineering, with a new standard of performance, economy, and safety available in no other car in the world today. It claimed that the unibody two-seat car was made of a rocket structural resin, which will absorb over four times the impact of a Cadillac without serious damage, with windows made of rigid a material that has 70 times the impact resistance of safety glass. And because of its three-wheel design, it saved 300 pounds and knocked $350 off the price, bringing the weight down to 1,000 pounds with a sticker price of below $2,000. Powered by a 40-horsepower engine from a BMW motorcycle, the Dale supposedly maxed out at 85 miles per hour. It came with a 15-month, 15,000-mile warranty. Millions of dollars began to pour into the 20th Century Motor Car Company as investors were eager to take advantage of this new opportunity. Some say Liz Carmichael took in up to $33 million. We're going to revolutionize personal transportation, Liz Carmichael told a Chicago Sun-Times reporter. Sure, Detroit will try to hurt me. That's why I'm talking about my autos so far in advance. If we're hurt by the big automakers, I want it to be out in the open. I want the world to know. Supposedly, production began in an industrial building on Deering Avenue in Canoga Park, and in a short time, a mock-up of the Dale was displayed at the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation's headquarters. This car, Liz promised, would be sold through 100 dealers and 250 distributors. And before the first Dale rolled off the assembly line, Liz also began adding other cars for future production, including a sedan called the Ravel and a station wagon called the Vanagon. And I say supposedly because, as you might have guessed by now, this was one big scam. One might read the brochures today and say, in hindsight, that all the claims were so outrageous they were almost laughable. Yet, in the mid-70s, it was taken very seriously. There was articles in major magazines and newspapers about Liz Carmichael and her attempt to take on Detroit. The car was even mentioned on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and allegedly Johnny was considering investing in the new car. And it gets even weirder. 
that Dale was featured on The Price is Right as one of their prizes. But fortunately, no one guessed the price of the car correctly. Otherwise, the contestants might have been shocked to find out the car they had just won didn't work. It wasn't long before cracks in Liz's story began to show, and in September of 1974, the California Corporation Commission issued a cease and desist order prohibiting the company from continuing to sell stock. Liz responded by saying, I don't want to sound like an egomaniac, but I'm a genius. I believe 100% that this car will revolutionize the industry. And as time went on, the designer of the Dale, Dale Clift, began to get suspicious. Especially when Liz claimed that she was in a head-on collision traveling 30 miles an hour inside the Dale and walked away without a scratch. Clift knew the car he built couldn't get up to 30 miles per hour. Clift demanded to see the books, but Liz refused and kicked him out. From that point on, Dale Clift had nothing to do with the car or the company. Liz began bragging that she had 100 workers in a gigantic factory in Burbank, California, poised to make 88,000 cars in the first year of production. But as things began to unwind, she moved the factory to Dallas in an attempt to hide her fraud from investors. It finally all came crashing down when Car and Driver magazine sent photographer Mike Salisbury to see Carmichael and her factory in person. This is what he wrote. I went out to the plant's location, driving forever to nowhere. Finding a crystal meth lab would have been easier. I felt like I was ultimately that close to Apache Junction. Finally, I found the alleged factory somewhere east of Encino in the land of Nod. Driving in a small alleyway between a bunch of rotting wooden chicken sheds, I found a dirty yellow building that could be the plant. Not quite 15,000 square feet, but it had walls. Sad walls and no chickens. It also had no doors and a dirt floor. Not exactly a ratty chicken shed. It was a filthy, empty cattle barn that smelled of scam. Under one bare light bulb, about three guys, not a hundred, in lab coats wearing Clark Kent glasses and scribbling on clipboards were studiously circling this thing. There was one rear wheel missing. Apparently, he had eliminated anything else that made this alien's egg a car. There was no steering wheel, no gas pedal, no glass windows. The clipboard guys left after their opening number performed for my benefit, and I was left alone with this Geiger-mobile. Knowing I shouldn't, I opened the engine compartment hatch and, well, hello... The motor's brand started with B, but didn't follow M and W. It was a Briggs followed by Stratton, like your granddad's power mower. Mike Salisbury had no doubt this whole thing was a scam. Now to add more strangeness to the story, in late January 1975, a salesman for the Dale, William D. Miller, was found murdered in his Encino office the victim of four gunshot wounds to the head. The prime suspect was a fellow named Jack Oliver, who, it was soon discovered, had previously served in San Quentin prison with Miller. At the same time, state and federal investigators were closing in on the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation. 
by March of 1975, all assets were seized and indictments were handed down after officials discovered that there were no factory, no cars, and no plans for production. Right after warrants were issued, Liz said, I'm going to beat the hell out of them, and I never expected them to take it lying down. But then Liz Carmichael disappeared shortly after charges were filed against her for defrauding investors. And now the kicker to this whole story. After an examination of Carmichael's fingerprints, it was discovered that she was a he. She was a 47-year-old man named Jerry Dean Michael, who had been a fugitive from the law since 1961. The FBI in Florida picked up Liz, or Jerry, while he or she was climbing out of a window. During her trial, she petitioned for and was granted the right to be called a woman. She represented herself in court and apparently did a very good job of it. Robert Youngdahl, who was the Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney, said, She was clever, articulate, and persuasive. And she would say that, This is a private war between me and Detroit's big three. And at times, she connected her struggle with that of Henry Ford. Jan Michael Power, a Dallas automotive engineer, testified at the trial that the Dale was literally held together with baling wire and coat hangers. It was really gross. She was convicted on multiple charges of conning investors out of almost $6 million. And then, after exhausting all her appeals and whatnot, she was ready to go to jail for nine years, but then skipped bail. Years later, her story was featured on Unsolved Mysteries featuring Robert Stack, and this caused her to be recognized in, strangely enough, the town of Dale, Texas, working in a flower shop under the name Catherine Elizabeth Johnson. She was picked up and sent to jail. It is said that she died of cancer sometime in 2004. With all of this, there were only three Dales, besides the original made by Dale Clift, made. And from what I've read, only one of these actually ran, although not very well. The one on display at the showroom of the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation headquarters didn't even have an engine, and the front tires were screwed on to a 4x4 piece of wood, which was in place of a front axle. According to his friend Richard Smith, Dale was not surprised by the outcome. He attended the trial in Los Angeles. He would shrug it off and went on with the rest of his life. He started up the Dale Development Company and was awarded several patents for his effort. Dale Leon Clift died on November 3rd, 1981, never having received any royalties from his car, and even the $2,000 check he received from Liz Carmichael bounced. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. Here's what I don't get about this whole story, the one I just told. This lady, Liz Carmichael, was obviously running a scam. From what I've read, everything from the very beginning was all part of her scam. And it was working. She took in millions of dollars. She was on the news. She was in magazines. But any reasonable person could see 
at least I would think, that eventually this house of cards has to collapse. I mean, eventually people are going to notice that there are no cars being produced. People are going to investigate your warehouse and find out that there's no manufacturing plant. They're going to discover all this. Yet she stuck with it until she was in handcuffs. You see what I'm saying? She took in millions of dollars, but still didn't get out while the getting was good. I mean, there had to be a point where she had to realize that it was over or it was close to being over. Take the millions, put it in a suitcase, go over the Canadian border, and then fly out from there or something. I don't know. The only thing I can imagine is either she had this such a tremendous ego that she actually believed that she was too smart to get caught, which in that case, I would think that it proves she wasn't that smart, or she knew because of her out outstanding warrants that she couldn't leave. She couldn't get on a plane without her true identity being discovered, or she couldn't get over the border because of a lack of passport or something. I don't know, but it seems to me that running long before it got to the point of being in handcuffs was what was needed. But then again, that lack of common sense is perhaps why she was a criminal, you know? This is one of those stories, too, that I'm actually shocked there hasn't been a movie version made yet. Apparently there was a Kickstarter campaign to finance a documentary about this whole affair. And from what I saw, I went to the page and it looked like they got the money they were hoping for. But yet the documentary has never been made as far as I can tell. Or maybe it's still in the works and these people are perfectionists that are taking their time and doing it right. You'd think a story like this would be more popular, you know? It, it, more people would be aware of it. There would be books about it. But there really isn't much out there. I couldn't find many interviews with anybody involved. As far as I know, Liz Carmichael never gave an interview, not that I could find. I found the one of the friend of Dale Clift, but no interviews with Dale Clift. He must have lived the rest of his life never talking about it. There's very little information, first-hand information about it, which is, when I write these stories, I like to have first-hand information, but I had to deal with what I could find for this one. Let's uh, move on to the ending credits. You know, the producers of podcasts do it out of the love for doing it. None of us make any money, yet there is a cost involved, so... If you'd like to help us out and let us continue our hobby, why don't you visit our Patreon page? You can find information about that at uh, PsyCon's website. That's CSICON.FM. And of course, thanks to all you who already support our network and these shows. And while you're at the PsyCon website, check out a few of our other shows. There's a ton of stuff on there. There was a new show on the network that just began this week called What's in a Name? This is a short, bi-weekly show hosted by Gordon Fry. You know, Gordon from the History Files. He talks about the origins of the name of places and things. Very interesting stuff. I think they've only got one episode up so far, but you should go over and subscribe. It's on iTunes like all the PsyCon shows. Give this show and all the others at the PsyCon Network a listen. They can be found at PsyCon.fm. 
You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can complain or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I'd love you to join. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and I understand that, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or give me a few stars. Those things really help. And remember, links to all the sources I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And always a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter or wherever. You will always have a special place in my heart. I'll talk to you in two weeks with another exciting story, I hope. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new.